Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into the death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be of His resurrection. Note this, those words in the likeness of the second time around there are not there. So we shall be of His resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Lord Jesus, in your name, we come before you as God and King and Creator and Master and Authority. And we come before you as the one who was dead and is alive. The one who lives forevermore. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What a stunning, amazing, fantastic thought, Lord. We believe this. And I absolutely affirm this today in my heart and with my brothers and sisters today. You are the resurrected one. You are the giver of life and you have called us to live. So Father, I pray that your spirit would breathe life into our hearts today. Teach us what this is all about. But Lord, breathe life. Encourage the saints. Draw the lost. And may we all together see life in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name again we pray. Amen. Well, you may or may not be familiar with the name Catherine Hamnett. A British fashion designer and political activist. But her notoriety began with the marketing of oversized t-shirts with large print mottos, especially popular in the music culture of the 1980s. Her most well-known design came in 1986 by way of a hit music video by pop newcomers, Wham! Some of you may remember the music video. The song was Wake Me Up Before You (laughs) Go-Go. 
And the video begins with the entire entourage of musicians and the two main guys of Wham! and the background singers all wearing Hamnet's white t-shirts bearing the block letter slogan, Choose Life. I saw the video when it first came out. We were addicted to MTV back in those days. Then I saw the video and I went... I mean, it was coming out of the, you know, the death of the music videos. It, all of a sudden, there's this choose life, this statement. And I remember really being impacted by that. Not by the video, because then it went all neon and lost me. But the very opening, choose life. Now, the phrase was uh, directed against suicide. Against drug abuse. Calling on people simply to choose life. But it went on to become used, as you might guess, by many pro-life groups over the, over the decades since. It's appeared on posters, campaign slogans. If you Google choose life today, you're going to get any number of pro-life groups. I, I think that's marvelous. It even showed up on license plates in 27 different states. Choose life. What's interesting is that Catherine Hamnett later became skeptical of the value of slogans. It's how she really got her her break in the fashion industry, but she she got tired of it and, and began to say, in fact, she said, quote, slogans for too many people are a substitute for action. She makes a good point. Five chapters now into Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And you might begin to wonder, in all this talk about the free gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus, how do we get beyond slogans and into the action? I mean, how do we live this out? If you're you're at all like me, I can just sit in theology all day long. I just love it. I love to think it through and process it. And this word means that, and that word means this. And and I love to just soak it up. But at the end of the day, what are you going to do? There is something in us as human beings that says, okay, now what? i got to act. I want to move. How do we move beyond theology and into life? Living, choosing life. Moses stood out there in the hills of Moab, outside of the promised land, east of the Jordan River. He would not enter the promised land. You may recall that. And shortly before his death, he called the whole congregation of Israel together. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So, he says, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. That's where Catherine Hamnett got the phrase, by the way. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. It so impressed her, I don't know if she was sitting in a church or read it or whatever, but it so impressed her, it got on the t-shirt. She got it from Moses. He was the one who said it first. So like the Scriptures. But when Moses spoke these words, it was not a motto. It wasn't a jingle or a catchphrase or a slogan. It was a call to life. It was a call to action on the part of Israel. You've heard it all. He says at the end of what we call the book of Deuteronomy. As he has just recounted the entire law. He's he's summed up all of Torah. He stands there and says, you've heard it. Here's all the info. Here are the blessings. Here are the curses. You choose life. Choose the blessings. Live to own those. Choose life, he calls out. 
How appropriate in 2016 as we live in a dying, despairing world. We talk about that a lot, more than I want to. Workplace violence, abortion, random beatings, terror, suicides. I just read this morning, there's been a rash of freeway shootings in Northern California, outside of San Francisco, on Highway 80. Someone is targeting people out there. And it just seems to never stop. We live in a dying world, a culture that seems to be choosing death rather than choosing life. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised. Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But in this world of death, Moses said, Choose life. The Lord would say to you and to me this morning, Choose life. And so we're going to talk about how to do that. We're still in the second overall section of the book of Romans. Very methodical. I called it systematic theology on Wednesday night because Paul is intentional as he's moving us through and helping us process what this is truly all about. He is laying the foundation of doctrine on the foundation which is Jesus Christ because there is no other. And as he lays out this foundation, he began with condemnation and now we're in this wonderful section of salvation. Part two, if you will, in the book of Romans. Beginning at verse 22 of chapter 3, running all the way through chapter 8, it's all about salvation. But this section can be further broken down. And those of you who like to think this way and and outline things, from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, it's justification. Paul is talking about explaining, helping us understand this concept of justification. Having been justified. And now, in chapter 6, and he will continue in chapter 7, he talks about sanctification. And then finally in chapter 8, preservation or glorification, whichever shun you want to use. This morning, we move from justification into sanctification. The the change from chapter 5 to chapter 6 is that, conceptually, ideologically. Paul is now going from this teaching us justification to say, okay, now here's how it plays out. Here is sanctification. Now, truly you can't separate the two. You don't have sanctification without justification. You don't have it one without the other. Paul only does this, speaks differently and uniquely about these two, so that we can understand how it all works. So, a good question to begin with is, what is the difference? Aren't they both just theological constructs? Justification, sanctification, okay, we learned some theology this morning. No, they're not. Justification deals with what God did for us. Sanctification deals with what God does in us. Justification, let me put it this way, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Having been justified, again he says, it deals with the guilt of sin. Having been justified by faith, Romans 5 verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified, the guilt is gone. We don't wallow in that stuff anymore. I have been justified. So justification deals with that guilt. The gavel comes down, the judge declares, not guilty. So Christian brothers and sisters, stop 
feeling guilty. Well, what if I sin? Well, then feel guilty. But stop sinning. And you won't feel guilty. Jesus died that we might be just as if I'd never sinned. Right? So justification deals with the guilt of sin. And understand that with justification, God doesn't make me righteous. No, He declares me righteous. Big difference. He declares me righteous. Not guilty. Case thrown out of court. Lack of evidence. He declares me righteous. But you and I both know, even though we have been justified, we can still sin. So get this. While justification, this is so important, while justification deals with the guilt of sin, sanctification deals with or disarms the power of sin. I'm going to say that again because everybody was watching Susie walk in and sit down. Aren't you glad she can still turn heads? Okay. Justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification disarms the power of sin. Which makes this wonderful. God takes the justified person who He has declared righteous, though still a sinner, and He actually makes him, makes her holy. He disarms the power, the ability of sin to hold us back from becoming what God has declared that we are. And that is righteous. He declares us righteous and then He makes us righteous. And that's sanctification. That's what's going on in our lives. I've said this many times over the years. That's why we're not raptured the moment we believe. The moment I believe, I'm declared righteous. But I still need some sanctifying. I need the power of sin dealt with in my life. And God begins then to work that process. And that's what Paul begins to get into right here. In this brilliant, systematic theology. Paul uses the word sanctification for the first time. In chapter 6, verse 19. If you'll skip ahead and look at that. He says, so now, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Resulting in sanctification. He says in verse 22, again, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So twice there in chapter 6, for the first time in this letter, he uses this new word, sanctification. By the way, if that phrase there, enslaved to God, bothers you at all, I invite you to come back Wednesday night. We're going to talk about that. The word sanctification. You Bible students, you're going to recognize it. It's hagiosmos. Hagiosmos. Why should we recognize that? Because the word hagios or hagios is saints. Holy ones. Hagiosmos is the process of holiness, of sanctification. Of being made a holy one. It is the answer to Jesus' prayer for His followers the very night before He was crucified. When He said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them, hagiosmos them, in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, make them holy by the word of truth. Make my people holy. And by the way, at that point, He's not just talking about the apostles. He's talking about all of us. Father, Jesus prayed, sanctify them. Sanctification 
is that marvelous condition of sainthood of all believers. You don't need papal approval. You are a saint when you believe in Jesus. You are in the process of sainthood right now, hagiasmos, sanctification. So the justified are the sanctified. And again, you don't have one without the other. One is done, one is being done in us and through us. Now let's consider these things. Backing up a couple verses before chapter 6 gets going. In chapter 5, verse 20, we're told the law came in so that the transgression would increase. The law came in so the transgression would increase. Trent and Leah understand this. We, were, we had dinner last night. You, you should have known, Saturday night dinner with Rick, you're going to be talked about. It's just the way it is. Leah uh, and, and Trent Oman, if you haven't met them, you've got to meet them. They're, they're wonderful. And, and Leah was talking. We discovered that Leah was at Abilene Christian University the exact same time that Cheryl and I were there. We didn't know each other. She was in the biology department, that's why. Because I... Well. <laughs> But we were talking about and kind of laughing about the fact that there were, there were a number of rules that were on-campus rules for Abilene Christian University, some very strict rules. And what we were laughing about is the more rules that they piled on, <laughs> the more we wanted to break them. And that is absolutely true. Girls had a curfew, guys did not. Because they all figured if the girls were in, what would the guys be able to do? <laughs> So what did the guys do? We went out. What did the girls do? They climbed out their windows. I mean, so if you have rules, <laughs> the transgression increases. Not that we shouldn't have rules, but that is our human response to more rules. Give me more law, and I will figure out more ways to get around that law. Because my nature doesn't want to be tied down like that. And so we're told the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I love that. It's the, the word is really superabounded. Grace superabounded. Listen, you can't out-sin grace. I'm not inviting you to try. That's just dumb. Because you just mess yourself up. But the, the truth is you can't outsend His grace. Where sin increased, where sin became clear, grace superabounded. Exploded on the scene. Why not just sin? Why even worry about it? Grace superabounds. Why not just say I believe in Jesus and live however I want? The Spirit anticipated your response. <laughs> As sin reigned in death, verse 21, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? God knew we were going to think this. And He says, may it never be. We might translate that, please! Should we continue to sin that grace may increase? No way! This cannot be not. In fact, you could write in a great big, absolute, emphatic not. Should we continue to sin that grace may increase? I mean, why would you even ask such a thing is, is the idea. And in fact, read in the Greek, may it never be is an emotional response. It's Paul almost hearing the question raised in his own mind and going, wait a minute, it's dumb. 
Are you kidding me? Why would we do that? No, no way. And then the second thought immediately to follow it is very rational and spiritual as he poses a stunning question. And it is a question we still deal with. He says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You thought that through? I've read that verse many times in my life and every time I read it I think, yeah, how? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It is the question of sin among the saints. The world would call it hypocrisy among the holy ones. You say that you've died to sin, but I know you still do. How shall we do this? What do we do about this? One more time. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now there are two typical responses to this. And both of them are flawed. The first response is the legal response. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? The legal response. Go back to the law. I've given my life to Jesus. I've accepted His grace. I've gone into the waters of baptism. I come out a a new person. And the only way to deal with sin is to be legalistic. Keep the righteous requirements. Be strict about it. It's the teaching that the cross is only sufficient to get me into the waters of baptism. And after that, it's up to me. And my friends, that is heresy. That is not biblical doctrine. It's not what Paul has spent the last five chapters explaining to us. And it's not what the scriptures teach us. Jesus saves me just so far, and then from there on, it's up to me, man. He cleans up the mess behind me, but before me, I better watch out. Better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. It's just such a... I mean, that's a Santa Claus thing. That's not a Jesus thing. It doesn't work like that. And by the way, if I go back to law, if that's my response to the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? If I go back to the law, it just breeds self-righteous pride, which is sin. So you're not doing yourself any favors by becoming a strict legalist. By being a rule keeper. I'm not saying don't keep the rules. It, It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our heart and our motives. And if I'm going to be a strict, self-righteous religiousist, then I'm no different than the Pharisees. And if you recall, Jesus had a big problem with them. And their whole mentality and their whole attitude toward faith. What did Paul just get done saying? You can't keep the law. You can't do it. It was added so the transgression would increase. So if I receive grace through faith and immediately turn around and head into a legalistic mentality, I'm going right back to transgression. I'm just going right back into sin. It's the opposite of what I think I'm doing. You cannot die to sin only to live out the legal, sanctimonious, religious response. For by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And last week we talked about boasting, but what do we boast in? Him. His work. And if I boast in anything applied to myself, it's my tribulations. 
I glory in those because I know that my tribulations bring about perseverance, improving character, and hope. So I'll boast about that. But to go back to law, it makes no sense. We come to grace. Don't leave grace and go back to the old thing. Paul said in Galatians 1.6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Then he goes on to say, not that there is another gospel. There's not. There's only one good news, and that is grace through Jesus Christ. The different gospel that he's going after in the book of Galatians is the legalism. It's the circumcision. It's the Judaizers who are saying to this newfound, wonderful faith, they're saying, great, grace, wonderful, but we've got to keep the law. And Paul says, why would you go back when you've just been set free? Why would you, Israel, go back to Egypt when God has delivered you? Why would we as people of faith do the very same thing? The problem with works-based religion is it always comes up short. It is never enough. Why? Because sin is too powerful. And sanctification is here to deal with the power of sin in my life. But if I try to go legalistic... I fail, I fall apart, I head right back into guilty living even though I've been justified, which is supposed to deal with the guilt. Are you with me? The Bible does not teach this. What the Bible teaches, the words of Christ Jesus, John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You know what my part in all of this is? I show up. I just show up. And Jesus does it all. It truly is His work, His power, His authority, His grace, His might, His splendor, His wonder, and none of it is mine. He does it. I'm just here. In His name. I'm just trusting Him to sanctify. Have you ever noticed how... Suddenly, a behavior that you really struggle with, you're not struggling with anymore. Something that maybe 10 years ago was a big deal in your life. And you just thought, and you prayed, Lord, I just wish you could just take this away. And all of a sudden, you realize, I'm not doing that anymore. That's That's not in my life anymore. How weird is that? And you can't remember what you did to make the change. You know why? Because you're being sanctified. And it wasn't anything that you did. It was the work of the Spirit of God in you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the begotten of the Father. It's so simple. So the first response here to how shall we who died to sin still live in it, the first response is a legal response and it's a wrong response. The second response which is far more prevalent in the church today, is the mystical response. And it is also flawed. It's not back to the law. No, instead, it's back to the grave. What do you mean? There are those who say, well, the answer to this is we must die to sin daily. Mystically. How do you die to sin? I'm just going to die to sin. 
It's this spiritualized response. How shall we who died to sin, sin still live in it? And so humbly and prayerfully and sincerely, they attempt this continual, vague, esoteric dying to self. Got to die to self, man. Die to self. What does that mean? I don't know. Just do it. <laughs> because we can't continue to live in sin, so we got to die to self. And they're living in the graveyard. This is a ghostly, vague, spiritualistic approach to a very practical question that has a very practical answer, and it's totally bogus. How do you do that? Again, how do you die to yourself? Is it some kind of spiritual self-denial? Is it what happens during Lent? I'm going I'm to deny myself something that I want. And that way I'm dying to myself. But if you have that mentality, you are right back into works. Trying to figure out how shall we who died to sin still live in it. Let me give you the biblical response. Don't go back to law. Don't go back to the grave. Go back to the cross. And when I say back to the cross, I don't mean to communion about 15 or 20 minutes ago. I mean 2,000 years ago, go back to the cross. The Bible teaches, listen... The Bible teaches we have died to sin. We have died to sin. Romans 5.1 Having been justified means the death of a believer is a thing of the past. It is a thing that took place at the cross. The transaction is complete. 1 John 3, verse 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that's hard teaching. It doesn't mean that you don't commit a sin. It means you don't continue in the course of sin. It means the moment you are made aware of sin, you you change direction. By the power of the Spirit, by the sanctification that comes from God's work, you don't live in sin as a lifestyle. Those who are born of God practice righteousness. Now, this presents a serious problem for the believer. Again, the question comes out. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Having been released from the guilt of sin, how can I truly be released from the power of sin? And it is the struggle for the believer. because, And I'm sure you've asked that question. I gave my life to Jesus, I'm following Him, and yet I still do these stupid things. And in fact, in chapter 7, Paul will address that directly. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Everything I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And everyone who follows Jesus at some point comes face to face with that issue. Father, how can, if I'm released from the guilt, how can I be released from the power? There is a way. And the way is of sanctification. The way of sanctification. Now track this through with me. There are three words that are right here in the text. I was going to come up with my own, but I thought, well, that's dumb. They're already here. So, three words in the text that will help us track the way of sanctification. Number one, no. Not no as in N-O. No as in K-N-O-W. And by the way, there's a huge difference. There's say no to sin. Just say no to sin. You're going to fail. But if you know what we're about to know here, 
It will change you. Be careful. We're about to get altered. Keyword number one, no. It's in verses 3 and 6 and 9. Keyword number two, consider. It's in verse 11. And finally, keyword number three, present. And that's in verse 13. So those are your three words. No, consider, present. No. Keyword number one. Look at verse three. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? This is Paul's immediate answer to the question. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Question, when did Jesus die? 2,000 years ago. If I've been baptized into Jesus, that means I've been baptized into His death, which means my death to sin happened 2,000 years ago. You've got to look at this from a God's eye perspective, not bound by time. He sees the whole thing. He sees the death of Christ, and He sees the faith in you happening in the same moment. Because God is I am. Right? Ever present. Everything for God happens right now. It's very different for us. But He looks at you and your sin. He looks at the cross. He looks at you crying out in faith and He says, Justified. Know that. Know that. Contrary to another defective dogma, He does not keep dying perpetually. Jesus died once. He is not still on the cross. He doesn't die over and over and over and over. Just ask Joseph of Arimathea. He was there. Ask Nicodemus. He helped pull the body down off the cross. They bore the weight of that body all the way to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They wrapped the body in those those swaddling clothes, literally. The wraps of burial. They put the spices on top of him, about a hundred pounds weight. They laid him in the tomb. They saw the stone roll away. They know he was dead. Having died 2,000 years ago, But it was only once and not perpetual. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, a verse I quote a lot. Jesus saying, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Well, what was that will? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, By this will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. It says in Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering He has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. And by the way, though sanctification is a process, the word hagiosmos is not a verb, it's a noun. I'm the sanctified. In process of sanctification, but I'm also the sanctified. I'm the Holy One right now. And I'm being made the Holy One simultaneously. It's remarkable, but Jesus Christ died once, once, once for all. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 6, or sorry, verse 4, he continues, he says, Therefore, having been buried with Him through baptism into the death, and by the way, there is a definite article right before death. It should read that we have been buried with Him through baptism into the death. Not into death, vaguely, but into the death, His death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Know this, Paul would say. 
This is the beginning of sanctification. Know this. And again, that word death. The death. His death. Not mine. Well, i got to die to self. No, He died. You die with Him. This phrase, die to self, I I think it's even marketed on Christian t-shirts, man. It's not a biblical phrase. Well, I don't need to die to self. We humble ourselves before the Lord. But my death is in His death. The death is His death. Which is what frees me from sin. Not my death. You can die a thousand times, you're still going to be a sinner. You've got to be baptized into His death. Which is what sanctifies. Which is what makes me a holy one. His death. You know what my death can produce? (laughs) Death. And we could try it right here, but I could only do it once. (laughs) And it wouldn't be any good. But get this. I was baptized into His death. And if I am to gain power over sin in my life, I must first know that I died to sin 2,000 years ago. I died to sin, past tense, with Jesus on the cross. I died to sin already. Now, I love the graphic picture that we see in these verses regarding baptism. I have told people many times, if you want to understand baptism, water baptism, go to Romans 6 and just read it because Paul paints this beautiful picture of the death and burial The comparison we see as we go down into the waters as though we're being buried. It's a graphic illustration. Then we come up out of the waters as though we're being resurrected into this new life as we rise up. But I want you to get this. Paul's not talking about baptism here. When he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into the death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He's not talking about baptism. Not talking about water baptism. What do you mean? (laughs) If we make this into a doctrinal discussion of water baptism, and I unfortunately have, we will drain it of its true significance. If we just say, well, this is Paul's doctrine of baptism. It's not. It is not a treatise on the method or the technique of water baptism. Tub, pond, or ocean. It's not an apologetic on the requirement of immersion versus sprinkling or splashing or dumping. The word itself is enough to explain baptism. I mean, we can talk about baptism. We can deal with the theology of baptism. The New Testament is absolutely clear. Baptizo means to submerge. It means to immerse. The Word itself tells us how to do it. But that's not what he's dealing with here. If I say, again, as I have in the past, that Paul is just describing the ordinance of baptism, then get this, I do exactly what the Judaizers did with circumcision. I get stuck on the symbol and I entirely miss the spiritual truth that is being told here, which is much bigger than water baptism. Well, Rick, are you denying water baptism? No, I'm not. Jesus said, do it, so I do it. You know, I mean, it's as simple as that. What your view is about baptism is really beside the point. What did he say? What does it mean? Do that. 
But if we hone in on that and say, oh yeah, it's just, it's a great picture of baptism when we study it out to understand how we're to do baptism and then we do the baptism based on this passage, we've missed the whole thing. And here is the spiritual, spiritual reality that we must know. Now get this. I'm going to let Alva McLean, the great Bible commentator, say it. When Christ died, we died. And when we believe, He baptizes us by the operation of the Spirit of God immersing us into the body of Christ. Now that's the spiritual reality. That, that baptistry is a picture, a symbol of the spiritual reality and the spiritual reality is what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about how to get baptized. He's talking about the truth that when Christ died, I died. When I put my faith into Jesus, my faith goes into one who died 2,000 years ago and suddenly, as of 2,000 years ago, I am no longer a sinner. I am no longer dead in my sin. I have died with Christ. And so that right now, this amazing, spiritual, fantastic immersion takes place. And I am brought into the body of Christ. I become a child of God by the work that Jesus did on the cross. Not by the work that I did in the baptistry. Do you see the difference? The one is a symbol. The other one is the truth that the symbol just symbolizes. And it's, it's, it's hard for us because as human beings we like the symbol. We like to check the boxes. Okay, baptism, check. Communion every Sunday, check. Okay, keeping the law, check. And we're right back into legalistic religion. And we're guilty because I miss communion on a Sunday morning. Or we're guilty because I start to do certain things that I, oh, I know better and I already checked that box, but now I've erased it, so I've got to go back and check it again. It's not about the symbol. It's about this true, significant spiritual truth. And baptism is simply a picture of what Paul is really talking about here, which is far more profound than water in a tub. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Okay, so likeness there. Now Paul's saying it's a symbol, it's a picture. It looks kind of like His death. He says, certainly we shall also be, and like I said, you want to scratch out in the likeness there. We shall always be also be of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. So why do we keep talking about crucifying the old man? Why do we continue to have conversations? How many times does the old self need killing? Put the stick down, the horse is dead. Stop beating that thing. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Not, i got to get crucified with Christ today. Well, but, but Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Yeah, as a picture of tribulation. As a picture of the willingness even to suffer for Him as He suffered for us. That, but that's all that is. It's not about being re-crucified every day. And by the way, if we needed to die to self every day, then we should be getting baptized every day too. Well, that's just silliness, Rick. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's legalism. And it is not what Paul's talking about. We need to know. Believers, you need to know that you died with Christ. When you put your faith in Him, you died with Him. And that is a done deal. And truly, it's 2,000 years old at this point. Verse 7, one more time says, For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died. Hey, this is why knowing this is so important. Can I really practice righteousness instead of sin? Of course you can. Thank you. Paul says this with a corpse in view. Think about it from that perspective, verse 7, one more time. He who has died is freed from sin. How many dead people can sin? You can't anymore. Once the body dies, it doesn't matter how... You know what, Hitler, the moment he died, he stopped sinning. The second you die, literally, tangibly, you you no longer have the ability to sin. When you die, you're free from sin. And so know this, you died to sin. The old man, the old woman, dead, gone, buried, history, toast, fried, whatever you want to say, gone. And now, because I've died to sin, I don't have to live in it. It has been disarmed. Verse 8, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And that live with Him is not future tense, it's present tense. If we have died, past tense, we shall live. Right now. We believe we will live with Him. Knowing, there's the word again, third time, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that he died, he died, and here Paul says it again, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Does Jesus die anymore? No. What does he do? He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. And that is present tense and that is now. And that's what I've been called to. That's why I can so emphatically say choose life. Christians, do you understand? You have more opportunity to choose life than anyone else on the planet. In fact, you have the only true opportunity to choose life today. Because I died and now I live. Know this. You want to get into and onto the way of sanctification? Know this. The old man, the old woman, died with him at Calvary so you can live with him today. Second word. Consider. Consider. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider is not strong enough a word. The word is probably better translated reckon. Reckon. He is talking about a holy paradigm shift. A completely different spiritual mindset. The word consider there is legizomai, and it means to count as certain, or to reckon as done. So see yourself as such. 
Once you know this to be true, okay, I know now, I'm understanding what, what I'm being taught, what the scriptures say is I know that I died with Him, so now reckon it to be true. Live that way. Don't keep going back to the grave. Live believing, knowing the absolute of what's happened. Instead of trying to crucify the old guy again and again, live every day reckoning the death is done. And by the way, this has been called the secret to holy living, right here. The secret to holy living. And Paul explains it even more in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, that's justification, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, justification dealing with the guilt of sin, sanctification disarming the power of sin. And it is an absolute lie from the pit to think that as a believer in Jesus, you can't stop sinning. It's not true. You now have a power to stop sinning that you never had before when you are in Jesus Christ. Well, then why do I keep sinning? Because you've chosen to. But the power is available for you to stop. Know this. Reckon it true. Sin no longer has power over you like it once did. This is the new reality in Jesus. This is the new breed of people who have been born again in Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And this is where it gets really cool. Number three, keyword number three, know, reckon, or consider, and finally, present. Present. And here we start to get into what you can do, what I can do, how do I respond. This is a choice. Present yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness to sin or of righteousness to God. That's your choice. You can choose. You are empowered to present yourself as an instrument of righteousness to God. But this is what's so amazing to me, what's so cool. The word here, instruments, is hoplon in the Greek. And it's worth jotting down, hoplon. Hoplon means literally weapons. Implements of warfare. So what he's saying here... Again in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members, the the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness, but instead present yourself to God and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. In other words, brothers and sisters, present arms. Present arms. That's what he's saying here. Present arms. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. 
And the reason why I mentioned earlier, and if you didn't understand this before when I said people mysticize the whole idea, they make it mystical, how shall we die? We who died to sin still live in it, so we have a mystical response that we're just going to kind of keep mystically dying to self. Listen, this is not mystical. It is absolutely practical because the battle we're engaged in is a spiritual battle. A spiritual reality, this is war. Let me give you a political opinion for a moment. The Obama administration's foreign policy is collapsing. You don't have to be a Democrat or Republican to know that. This administration's foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, but all around the world, is collapsing. And it's happening in large part because of an explicit refusal to recognize that we are at war. We're at war. We live in war times every bit as dangerous as those that ran up to World War II. We are at war. Now, <laughs> someone might say, well, I don't want to be at war. doesn't matter if you want to be. You are. No, I don't like war. I don't either. But we're at war. I don't want to be at war. I'm sorry, ISIS has already declared war against the United States and Israel. Al-Qaeda has already declared war, and they are fighting with that intention of ultimately destroying the West. That's what they want to do. Beginning by developing the caliphate throughout the Middle East. They have declared war. They are marching to war while we sit here saying, that's not war. It's a JV game. It's not really war. No, we're not going to believe that and we're not going to use the word terrorism. We're going to avoid all this stuff. We're going to be so politically correct that we sit here dying in a dying world that has declared war against the living God and against His people. Iran. We make a deal with Iran and they're chanting death to America the day the the deal is signed? Are you kidding me? And then on top of that, this last week, Russian Prime Minister Medvedev said that we have entered a new Cold War with the United States. Cold War's back. Hot war's brewing in the Middle East. And we sit back and say, we're not at war, that's why we're losing. That's why foreign policy is falling apart. And that same foolish attitude plagues many in the body of Christ. The refusal to recognize, I am at war here. Why do I go on sinning when I've died to sin? Because I don't know that I'm at war. Because I go about my, you know, superficial life on a daily basis and I don't recognize the spiritual reality that Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10.3 He says, for the weapons, the hoplon, of our warfare are not flesh. Know this. Reckon it. Present arms. The weapons of our warfare are divinely Powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Do you fight like that? Oh, I sinned again. I guess I need to die to self. Stop it! (laughs) Present arms. Your body is a weapon. Your soul is a weapon. Your spirit is a weapon to be presented either to God or to unrighteousness. Your choice. You're going to fight for one side or the other. 
You are going to battle one way or the other because this is a fight for life. And we're not talking about this enough. In the same way, the comparison just stunned me this week, in the same way that politically our country is not dealing with the reality of war, so the church is not dealing with the reality of war. Because when you're in war, and you, you know, you military personnel understand this. When you are in war, you are dialed in and that's all you're focused on, and you are fighting. And your greatest frustration is when your hands are tied by politicians back home. But we tie our own hands. By our refusal to recognize what's truly happening. By the way, what are the weapons of our warfare? You know what they are. I'll read them to you. Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told to take up the full armor of God so we'll be able to resist in the evil day which is now, and having done everything to stand firm. He says, stand firm then, having girded your loins with truth. The belt of truth. We need truth. We need truth to be taught. We need truth to be spoken. We need to be in the word of truth constantly, daily. Put it on like a belt so your pants don't fall down. The belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And by the way, it's preparation because you've got to be ready to go at a moment's notice. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, that's six things, number seven is pray. Because he says, and with all prayer and petition, pray at all all times in the Spirit with this in view. My friends, if we ignore this, we collapse into sin. You want practical teaching on sanctification? (laughs) Listen to this. Terry Eagleton is a British literary critic. I don't know what my deal is with British people today, but whatever. And he said this. He said, societies become secular not when they dispense with religion altogether, but when they are no longer especially agitated by it. He's right. You think Paul was an agitator? (laughs) Think Jesus was? We don't often consider Jesus or think about him as being, you know, the agitator in chief, but gang. He drove the religious stuff shirts nuts. The Romans didn't know what to do with him. And understand, you don't have to be a jerk to agitate the culture. You don't have to be an idiot. You just fight for the truth. You just present arms. You present yourself as a weapon for holy warfare. And it's not like the holy warfare of jihad, which is about death. It is holy warfare unto life. You present your body, your soul, your spirit to be used of the Lord for righteous things rather than for unrighteous things. And and it is a biblical concept. David wrote in Psalm 144, verse 1, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So again, as followers of Jesus, our bodies, our souls, and our spirits are implements of holy warfare. Present arms. Who are you going to fight for? 
Here's a reality of sanctification. When you are fighting for righteousness, you don't have time to worry about if you're tripping in sin. You are focused on righteousness. Sin has no power. Sin only has the power in your life that you give it. As you present arms to unrighteous things. Rather than righteous. Present. That word present. It's peristomai. Which in the Greek literally means to stand near. What a graphic picture. You're either going to stand near to godly righteousness or you're going to stand near to unrighteousness. One or the other. Psalm 73 verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So question, how near are you to God? Present arms. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Know that you died with Christ 2,000 years ago. And you will be, are being, sanctified, hagiosmos, the Holy Ones. You go all the way back to the earliest days. Cain. Cain was so angry with Abel. Frustrated. This stupid little brother who comes along and presents an offering acceptable to God. And he thought his fruit basket was something special. And so the Lord receives the offering of Abel and does not receive the offering of Cain. Well, that's not fair. Well, God knew their hearts. God knew Abel brought his best and He knew Cain brought, you know, what he could throw in the basket. And so Cain's angry. He's fuming. He is seething. And God comes to Cain. And the Lord says to him, Genesis 4, 6, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance, your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But Cain, he says, you must master it. You must master it. Romans 6.14 For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law. You are under grace. Again, a completely different mindset. Sanctification disarms the power of sin. Know it. Consider it. Present arms. In this dying world, do not let sin be your master. You have the power, brothers and sisters, not in and of yourself, but by the Spirit of Christ living in you. You have the power not to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Choose life. Choose life. Fight for life. Because in Jesus we have every reason to live. And in the end, like Paul, may we, the sanctified, say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father, I think sometimes in our, in our desire to be compassionate and sensitive and 
and understanding one with another that we make license for sin. That we make room for it. That we give approval to it or we wink at it or we kind of ignore it or sweep it under the rug. We all know it's there, but, but we're, we're just going to be... We're going to try and show grace. Lord, Your Word tells us clearly that is not grace. Grace cleanses us. Your grace justifies us. Your grace frees us so that in Your grace we may not sin any longer. You actually, Father, have given us hope. Hope to be a people who are sanctified, who are holy, who are living a life bent on the righteousness of God rather than the unrighteousness of man. And this is my prayer. Father, I begin with myself that You will continually remind me to present arms to righteousness. To present myself to You. To wake and first thing in the morning, Father, say, Lord, what do You have for me today? Lead me in the way of sanctification. Father, I pray this for our fellowship. We all have those different things in our lives that we struggle with. And we need not. Lord, free us from sin, helping us know that we have died to sin, not to live in it anymore, to reckon ourselves as dead to sin but alive to Christ. And Lord, to present ourselves to You for Your holy work in this world until Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.